Hello, welcome to Seattle on Tap. I'm Courtney Jacobson. And I'm Ashley Toten. Howdy. Oh, hello. <laughs> I also said my name like a fucking librarian from like <laughs> 30s. I'm Ashley Toten. <laughs> I don't know why I'm talking like that. <laughs> I feel like I always say mine like some cheesy radio announcer. So, you know, do do whatever you got to do. I have no idea what day it is anymore. I am in a constant blur of trying to figure out what day of the week it is. Let's go with Monday because when this comes out, that will be true. We're living in an alternate reality. An alternate Monday verse. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. I see you uh, drinking a beverage over there. Oh, yes. Um, So I'm drinking some more NA situations right now. I kind of like this. This is fun doing, uh, having you do different beer when we're doing a banked episode. It's kind of neat. Yeah. I kind of want to try some like gluten-free and some other stuff too that I don't ever Mm -hmm. drink to know what's happening but if I can be really honest the Mm. beer I'm drinking right now is fucking delicious for not having any alcohol Mm. um this is athletic brewing from Stratford Connecticut uh it's called the run wild IPA and I cannot even express enough that if somebody had walked up to me at a party and handed this to me I would just think it's an IPA like, I wouldn't have been like, oh, this is missing all the booze. Like, I probably would have figured it out after like five and just being <laughs> rehydrated. But yeah. um, <laughs> why am I so hydrated? Gosh, I'm hydrated. Um, <laughs> and alert. <laughs> and not slurring at all. Um, why are my words so crisp and clear? Not unlike this fresh-ass IPA. Um, (laughs) um, And it is just that. It is fresh. It is crisp. It's super Mm -hmm. hoppy. Um, It's got everything that a good IPA has, except the... It's fucking voodoo, man. This shit's delicious. And Mm -hmm. so I was poking around at the store trying to find this. Turns out these dudes have a stout... Mm-hmm. golden ale they have there's something else too um shit I can't think of what it is now but they have a bunch of different styles and now I'm like maybe I need to try them all I want to say that I've had a dark beer from them and really loved it, it this is real good mm-hmm. oh and it is only 70 calories for well, those well, well. about that sort of thing <laughs> Look at you. I mean yeah for people that are concerned about that sort of thing. It just says it on the can. It seems yeah. like a thing I should tell you. Well, if they're proud of it, you should also talk about it. <laughs> I'm assuming your beer has a lot more alcohol than mine. And by a lot more that it has some. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am drinking a beer from Level Beer. They are out of Portland, Oregon. Uh, this one is the low resolution hazy IPA. Um, their little uh, thing on the can says um, hazy IPA with big, juicy, tropical, and citrus hop flavors and aromas. The resolution is terrible. Mm. In other words, you cannot see through it because it's hazy. Um, this is a lovely. Uh, fruity but not you know overly fruity um nice very easy drinking beer and it is 6.7 percent which is much higher than it tastes so you know that's that's, terrifying you know for my beer before bed this evening (laughs) (laughs) But it is very delicious. I've had this before and uh, 
I really liked it. So I set one aside in my little, no one's allowed to touch these beers. They're for the podcast section of our beer fridge. <laughs> nice. I, I cut out a bunch of paper. I should take a picture of my fridge one day. I cut out a bunch of little heart pieces of paper and wrote saving. And oh. I just fucking slide them under the tab of all the beers I'm planning on drinking. Oh. And so if Daniel opens the fridge to steal a beer, he'll be like, nice. oh, nope. Got to put it back. <laughs> I mean, that's just courteous for both of you because he doesn't have to worry about which ones are up for grabs or not. And uh, you're saving yourself from being, I don't know, disappointed or upset. Mm-hmm. It's a true story. Smart. <laughs> Real smart. Speaking, speaking of true stories, do you have a good <laughs> one for me? <laughs> I, I really wish everybody could have seen your face just now. <laughs> well, uh, so I decided to stick with what I know best, and that is some true crime. Murder. Murder. Uh, so this is the story of the tube sock killings, which is also known as the mineral Washington murders. Nope. <laughs> I was like, mm? <laughs> all right. Don't know it. I'm excited. Okay. Beer in hand. So it's the summer of 1985 and 27 year old Stephen Harkins and his 42 year old girlfriend Ruth Cooper decide they're going to pack up and take their dog and go on a little weekend camping trip um, and they're headed out towards Tool Lake in Pierce County which okay. all sounds like things everybody I know does all the fucking time so Absolutely. the couple were both employed at a vocational school in Tacoma and so when they both didn't show up for work that next Monday, their coworkers obviously were a little bit like, what the hell? They went camping. Where the fuck are they? Yeah. And after not being able to contact them, they finally called police and the families of the couple. Mm -hmm. On August 14th of 1985, four days after the couple had disappeared, some hikers found Stephen's body. Stephen had been murdered. And it was still in his sleeping bag. Oh. The killer had fired a single shot straight at Stephen's head, likely while he was still asleep, which part of me was like, oh, thank God. He didn't have to, like, be tortured. Or anything. And, yeah. Um, then the hikers called the police. Um, the hikers called the police, rather. And then upon confirming that it was, in fact, Stephen... They, knowing that he had gone on this camping trip with his girlfriend, they start looking everywhere for Ruth. Right. So shortly into their search, not very far from where Stephen was found, they found the couple's dog uh, shot to death also. What lake was it again? Tool, T-U-L-E. Okay. Um, so they're looking. They still they don't find Ruth. She's nowhere to be found hmm. so then on october 26 1985 about a mile and a half from where stephen was found um <laughs> did you just oot oot <laughs> no uh, <laughs> no <laughs> mind your own business ashley we to do that a mile and a half from where they found stephen um they found a human skull. Uh. So dental records pretty soon after they put them in, it took a minute. It was 1985. This is not a thing that you could overnight that shit like you can now, Definitely. but it took a little while and they discovered via dental records that it was in fact Ruth. So then two days after her skull was found, investigators found Ruth's body and her purse separate to her head. Mm. Ruth had been uh, strangled with a tube sock. It was still tied around her neck. Okay. The medical examiner that performed her autopsy stated that Ruth had died of, quote, homicidal violence. And that aside from the collective violence, um, the wound that actually took her life was a gunshot wound to her abdomen. Wow. Um, despite this case being very widely publicized, uh, mm -hmm. no 
leads really ever came around. They were like, we don't know why this couple died. We don't know who would have wanted to kill them. Mm-hmm. And then soon after that, in December of 1985, 36-year-old Mike Reamer and 21-year-old Diana Robertson and their two-year-old daughter, Crystal, decided to go on a little family adventure and find a Christmas tree. Mike was also an animal trapper, by the way. And so part of this trip, he had planned specifically to go back out to where he had set some traps to kind of, you know, kill two birds with one stone. Like, I'm going to check my traps and I, no pun intended. As I said it, I'm like, oh, anyhow, the point of the journey was to get the Christmas tree mm-hmm. primarily. So they leave their home in Tacoma and they drive out to the campsite uh, that's out near the Nisqually River, out mm-hmm. also in Pierce County. Mm-hmm. That evening in Spanaway, Washington, about 30 miles north of the campsite, shoppers and staff at a Kmart store find two-year-old Crystal wandering around seemingly in a daze by herself. Mm-hmm. So the store security, like they do at a lot of places, they go, they take her, they're calling on the intercom, trying to get anybody to come get her. Nobody is coming to claim this kid. And they eventually figure out, like, she is not here with anybody. She was, like, left here. Somebody shoved her here, yeah. So the police are called, obviously, and Crystal is picked up and sent to stay at a temporary foster home, which is also so sad because that little girl was probably so scared. Yeah, God. Two days after Crystal was found at that Kmart store, um, the local news broadcasted um, having found her. And (laughs) thankfully, Diana's mom was watching the news. Mm -hmm. And uh, her granddaughter's picture flash on the TV and immediately called the police and went down to claim her. Um, Crystal was super, super excited to see her grandma. It's like the first familiar face in several days. Yeah. Somebody that loves her, a safe person. Yeah. And obviously due to the level of excitement, the authorities were like, (laughs) really, that's your grandma. So, you know, we don't really need that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but before she took Crystal home with her, they asked her to ask if she knew where her parents were because she mm. wasn't really answering them. And they were like, maybe she'll open up more to you or maybe right. you can understand her because she's two. Yeah. And so she says, honey, where's mommy? Mm-hmm. And she said, mommy was in the trees is all she said in response. Oh my God. <laughs> made me want to barf all over the place when I read that. So because Crystal was so little and didn't have the best communication skills, they weren't able to use that statement really for anything because that could mean anything, you know? Mm -hmm. So police began searching the general area that they were supposed to be going. Um, And then also some of the friends of Mike's came out and they were helping because they also were animal trappers and they had an idea of where he used to set his traps Mm -hmm. went out thinking that maybe if they followed that little circle and then kind of went inward that they would be Mm -hmm. able to find them and unfortunately they did not find anything uh until february of 1986 so on february 18th 1986 the body of diana was found by someone that just happened to be driving by on washington state route 7 in mineral washington she was half buried in the snow Mm. And she had been stabbed 17 times. Oh my God. Diana also had a tube sock tied around her neck. Oh my God. So uh, near to where Diana was found, they also found Mike's red 1982 Plymouth pickup truck, which is strange. Mm -hmm. They hadn't been able to find anything. So while going through the pickup truck for any potential evidence at all, they found a manila envelope on the dash that just said, quote, I love you, Diana. And the handwriting on that envelope was said to be Mike's, according to Diana's mom. However, handwriting experts were like, then eh, we find that inconclusive. We're not mm-hmm. positive that's his handwriting. Yeah. They also found several blood stains 
on the, the main bench seat of the pickup truck mm-hmm. doesn't sound great. <laughs> it doesn't sound like things went well. Like a they did story. not, however, find Mike. Wow. So based upon Mike's disappearance and also his criminal record, namely that he had multiple reports of domestic violence towards Diana, Yikes. Um, some of which resulted in at least one domestic assault charge that was in the October. So like two months before they went missing. Oh God. Well, he was jailed uh, briefly for domestic violence. Just FYI. Hmm. Um, so the authorities kind of had two theories at that moment. Mm-hmm. They were like the two scenarios that we think are the most likely one Mike may have driven the family out to the woods, killed Diana, and then drove to Spanaway and abandoned his daughter before going into hiding. Or two, Mike was a serial killer and was actually responsible for the deaths of Steve and Ruth in addition to Diana. Just but weren't on- they found in October, the first couple? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so they were- had to have been jailed early October. Mm-hmm. Got it. So then they're like... Well, I mean, of course it's the possibility that he's just missing and we haven't found him yet, but he was the only suspect they had. Yeah. So, far. so they were like, we're going to hold on to this one until we can confirm otherwise. So naturally, no other additional information was ever brought in that helped any investigator get any closer to solving this case until March 26th of 2011. Oh, Jesus. Yes. So... Some hikers, again, with the hikers, keep on hiking. I know Karen and Georgia say stay out of the woods, but all these people are finding people. Keep on hiking. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But also the last time we were up at Rainier, there were still signs of a person that was missing when we were there this summer. So, I mean, arguments for both sides. Yeah. (laughs) But also these are both times I'm going into the woods with my kid. So, you know. (laughs) You know. (laughs) <laughs> came back you did and you texted me right when you're like <laughs> if we're not back by this day I'm like okay great thank you send a posse <laughs> <laughs> see me hiking up the mountain she didn't text me <laughs> I know <laughs> oh lord oh. so March 26 2011 um some hikers again were out kind of near where Diana's remains had been found. Mm-hmm. And when I say that within a mile, they were within a mile of where her remains were found oh, and they okay. happened to spot what looked like part of a human skull. No. And so they call the police mm-hmm. and sure enough, it is a partial human skull and it belongs to Mike. No. So for 25 years, Mike had been the primary suspect in this case, and his remains had been less than a mile from Diana that entire time. And as you might imagine, with only a partial skull and no other remains, trying to figure out what his cause of death was, was pretty fucking difficult, especially after so long. Um, I'm going to go with dismemberment. Experts said the only information they could positively say mm-hmm. is that he did not receive a gunshot wound at the head whether on like suicide or murder they have no evidence that he was shot in the head um okay but it did make them be like oh he probably was killed by the same person that killed everybody else but they don't really have a way to know that for sure still mm-hmm. Um, authorities also kind of weighed, had to weigh the possibility that he may have still committed the crimes and then killed himself and himself in a different way and the animals and yeah, but that's all they know. And I also, this story kind of spoke to me because I grew up in Kent until Mm -hmm. I was almost five. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was living there when this happened and my parents, used to take us to go do all like go camping and Mm -hmm. go Christmas trees out in Pierce County. And I was like, Oh God, I could have been crystal at the store. Oh my God. Like it totally freaked me out. As could I, um, I lived in Tacoma at that time. Mm 
and um, five. So we were, I believe, Hilltop area at the time. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. And uh, I looked it up and it was not it not but like a few miles like really not that far (laughs) um and uh my so (laughs) there were a lot of other crazy murders and attacks and things like that going on in woods and trails in the Tacoma slash Pierce County region at this time too Mm -hmm. um there was also someone attacking people on running trails that were in the woods. And um, my mom and I have some, have a funny kind of story. Well, my mom has a funny story. I just like to make fun of her for it. Um, (laughs) Cause she, at the time, like at this time was an avid runner. She ran marathons and ran every single day, several miles And, um, she came, she was running in Point Defiance Park at the time, you know, right about this time. And there were, there's these trails that are kind of around there where it's really wooded and everything. And she comes across around a corner and it's early, early morning where it's it's basically just barely light out and she's just running her heart out. And a guy is running, come like heading her direction they both round the corner and kind of a little bit stumble into each other but not really actually colliding or anything and my mom lets out this weird instead of like ah you know screaming like most normal people <laughs> she lets out this deep voice oh thing <laughs> I can't do it or it's like because it's really loud <laughs> but it, that was her natural reaction reaction to just be like oh <laughs> So now anytime anything is scary or anything like that around my mom, I'm the asshole that's like, mom, does it just make you want to go? (laughs) And then she flips me off and we all laugh about it. (laughs) My God. So funny. But yeah, there was definite big fear about and the in the dude. He was like, geez, lady, why'd you scare me like that? like you scared me and like ran away there <laughs> you were running at each other yes <laughs> but it you know just is an attest to how scary things were in pierce county at the time oh yeah and there's actually like with this case um mm-hmm. when i was researching it so i left it out on purpose because it was this part was solved yeah uh, but originally this case, the tube sock killings, there were actually three couples that were listed as victims. Mm. Um, but the first couple, um, who's I honestly, I can't even remember names right now at all, mm-hmm. but, um, they ended up connecting, um, that murder to a guy who was a long haul trucker and, um, he the couple also there was no tube sock connection Mm -hmm. but they were able to convict this dude um and so he he has a son he's been sentenced for it got it um so that finally kind of broke it out but it's still listed on a lot of websites as like Mm -hmm. this was the first potential one however it's been solved but there's been no link to this person being able to be in the area when these other two so they're clearly not yeah Kate, you know, same person. Yeah. yeah. It's just so that it happened to be other things that were similar, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The eighties were pretty scary in, in Washington for sure. It's weird shit. And apparently so were the nineties and I'm about to tell a, re- a story about that too, but. <laughs> <laughs> but first we tinkle. But let's take a break. <laughs> I really do need to take a break too. All right, we're back. <clears throat> okay. 
So apparently we're sticking in Washington today. Um, and we're, we're talking about the times when Washington was uh, very scary to live in, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm all cozy. I've got my blankie. I'm ready for the story. All right, good. <laughs> so I'm going to tell the story of the happy face killer, the... which do not confuse with the smiley face killer. They are two different things. Strangely enough, both have to do with Washington State but and Eastern Washington, but they are different people. <laughs> yeah. One of them put happy faces on letters. The other one put happy faces, drew happy faces on trash bags that they put on the heads of their victims. Both not awesome. No. But, uh, I'm going to talk about the guy that drew happy faces on the on the letters. <laughs> um, okay. His name is Keith Hunter Jesperson. He was born April 6, 1955 in Chilliwack, British Columbia, Canada. But before we get into the happy face killer and Keith, um, there's a lot of people that have talked about this story. There's a lot of, there's even a document, actually a few documentaries, but there, um, there's a lot about this. Um, I wanted to kind of come at the story from the standpoint of his daughter, Melissa Moore. Um, she was 15 years old when her dad was arrested yeah. and, um, her dad and mom got divorced in 1989. Um, her dad was a long-haul trucker at the time when she was a kid. And they lived in eastern Washington, kind of about the Yakima area. And, um, you know, they weren't like necessarily rolling in the dough, but they had a really... I guess, bountiful life because they had good family around them. Um, she had siblings. They all got along. They had a really happy childhood. Um, obviously, her dad was gone for long periods of time. But when he did come home, uh, you just you hear her describing in um, there's a podcast only about this. And uh, she describes you know, you would hear him coming up the gravel driveway and it's like this low, loud sound of the engine of his truck and it's almost shaking the house and all the kids get excited. There were three of them and they just get so excited because their dad's home and he was kind of that guy that he come, he swoops in and he's you know, kind of like the superhero dad where not only does he come in and he's got like, you know, maybe a little token or present or something just to give to the kids because he's been gone for a while. Um, but he's a real, he's really tall and big. He's six foot six, 240 pounds. He's ginormous. So he felt like this giant superhero presence and he'd, you know, swoop in pick up the kids and he loved his kids and really doted on them. Um, however, uh, when there were a few things that she describes that um, she first kind of got a, an idea that maybe her dad was a little odd when she was pretty young, she was in elementary school. Um, they lived kind of on a farm and she had come across one of their cats. One of their field cats had kittens. She found, came across the kittens and she's like, oh, you know, playing with the kittens, loving them like any normal child would. And um, her dad comes out and he's like, oh, what do we have here? And she's petting them and he ends up, he scoops down and he kind of pets one of the cats. 
one of the kittens and then he just picks them up and one by one hangs them on the clothesline and then begins to like torture these kittens and act as though this is a normal thing and she's screaming and her her siblings are screaming and he's almost finding more amusement as the as her his kids are screaming about this and she runs inside she's crying you know they all all the kids run away they're crying they're you know clearly very very as upset as any of us would be Mm -hmm. something like this and she said she later found all the kittens bodies way off in the field somewhere and uh of course they were dead and fucking awful as a kid you know as a kid you don't really feel right questioning your parents on certain things and you know you're raised to believe your parents are kind of the the end all be all so she didn't really ever bring it up or say anything but it kind of stuck in her mind that that felt wrong it felt abnormal anyway so 1989 rolls around um she and her siblings are in the car with her mom and dad um sometimes he would keep his truck at the truck yard that he was kind of stationed out of it was in in eastern washington as well and uh in cheney and sometimes you know just so they didn't have the truck there at their property anyway so mom and the kids they'd all pile in when he was going to head off on a long haul and take him drop him off at work and then he they'd all be like okay bye we'll miss you you know he'd go off for weeks or whatever and um this time everything seemed really somber and the kids didn't really have an explanation why but the parents you know set the tone set the mood a lot of times and kids just kind of without question kind of follow and the parents weren't really talking there wasn't like any jovial nature anything like normal and they drop off dad at his truck place and he gives them all big hugs and kisses and says something to the effect of like I'll see you when I see you kind of thing and she kind of thought it was strange and then as they say goodbye they drive away and mom takes them to their grandma's house instead of going straight home and uh they get to their grandma's house and that's when they're told that their parents are officially splitting up, filing for divorce. Uh, apparently dad had told mom the night before that he wanted, he's like, well, I think we should just finally do it. Just kind of out of nowhere. They didn't really seem to have problems, especially even according to Melissa's mom. And uh, he just was like, yeah, I think, I think we should just go ahead and do it and get a divorce. And he wasn't trying to listen. He just had made up his mind. There was no discussion about it. So once he left that morning, he was gone. And uh, they did have a, I mean, this is late eighties, early nineties. And uh, so they had, there wasn't like a big blow up or anything for them to get a divorce. And so when he did want to come into town, he stayed at the house with them, even though they were divorced. And it even got to the point where even when um, Melissa's mom was dating someone else and eventually got remarried, he still would stay with them. He'd come in and because he, you know, he'd make, really good money as a trucker he'd swoop in he'd go and do like a giant grocery run and load up the pantries and you know really fill the house with with goodies and everything presents blah 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 and so it was kind of welcome like yeah if he's gonna come he's yeah he's my ex but he's gonna come he's gonna make that kids happy he's like 
he's not just mooching and couch surfing he's like right yeah contributing yeah and she didn't make a ton of money at her job so it was very welcome <laughs> to have the assistance and um yeah, but it was also kind of sporadic. There was no real rhyme or reason. He would just kind of show up and then he'd fill the pantry and then he'd be gone after a while. And uh, yeah, so eventually he ends up moving in with a girlfriend and she lived actually with her parents in Portland, like just outside of Portland. Um, so yeah, that uh, that's kind of the first part of it uh about Keith he uh Keith Hunter Jasperson as I said born in uh, British Columbia Canada um he checks off those kind of typical serial killer upbringing boxes rough childhood teased a lot as a kid because he was bigger um he had a lot of siblings. He was kind of in the middle of his lot, all of his siblings and all of them made fun of him for his size. Um, they started nicknaming him Igor or Igor or Ig because he was just so giant. And, um, and then kids at school started calling him that and teasing him and it just kind of followed him around. And so he was quiet but also, not surprising, his dad was an abusive alcoholic and was not nice. Uh, and then also, because we have to fill all the boxes, he tortured and killed small animals as a kid. And apparently as an adult, too. Yeah. And um, there were two different instances where he almost killed kind of tried to kill another kid his age that had made him really mad. Like basically he had been teased, teased, teased to the point where he went after this kid and tried to use his size to then choke out the kid. And Jeez. yeah, he snapped, tried to kill the kid and eventually people got him off of this kid and he didn't die, but he really wanted to, he was trying to kill two separate times, these kids, two different kids his age and um so fast back fast forward to post-divorce he's kind of spiraling um <clears throat> there's no there's not a lot of rhyme or reason to why he decided to get a divorce but it did seem like he got a girlfriend really quick after that so it might have been one of those situations especially you know, of the time, a lot men kind of didn't usually like to be without a partner. Um, so who knows why he ended up getting a divorce really, or what was going on, but he was very unhappy. And uh, he ended up kind of taken his anger out on this girl that he came across uh, named Tanya Bennett. She was 34 years old. He met her at a bar just outside Portland, just kind of a dive bar, pool hall. Um, she was thought of as very fun loving, but also there were rumors that and talk about how she would always go home with different guys and she was a party girl and you know, to hear some of the um commentary by cops at the time it was very like accusatory towards her mm -hmm. that she put herself in this position you know victim shaming is the fucking worst yeah and uh so yeah they met um had hit it off she went back to his place with him and um he of course intended to have sex with her and she did not want to so he raped her he punched her in the face and beat her so badly 
and you can imagine six foot six, 240 pounds. He had some pressure. He had some power. Um, and he ended up strangling her to death. And then he, the next day dumped her naked body off the side of a road, just in the ditch kind of a deal, like off the side and, uh, kind of like a down embankment and she ended up being found by this poor like college student yeah who had I think pulled off to pee and he ended up seeing her dead naked body yeah I can't imagine that seems awful so this got a lot of attention because she was well liked and was a very social girl I say girl, she's 34, social woman. <clears throat> and um, they're trying to figure out what the heck happened, who she was with, because, you know, it's a dive bar and people aren't really, you know, lots of people in and out. Nobody's really fully keeping tabs on everybody. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> so lots and lots of news coverage. And Hugh, this woman, middle-aged woman named Laverne, who decides this is going to be a great way to get rid of my alcoholic abusive boyfriend. I'm going to blame it on him. He goes to that bar. Me. Yeah. So she calls in to the cops, says, I think my boyfriend did it. Here's, here's his name, blah, blah, blah. Here's our address. So they come, they pick her up. Long story short, they decide she probably did it with him. They both get charged <laughs> and end up serving four years for this girl's murder. Um, which of course, because this, because Keith is not uh, being accused for the murder he did, uh, frees him up for, you know, more murders while he's on the road. Really getting out that frustration of how life has been unfair to him and uh, dealing with those emotions he never learned how to deal with. So he kills a couple more victims. But also, this trial got a lot of press. The trial for the Laverne chick and her boyfriend. So he starts writing notes on bathroom walls. (laughs) He, um, there's a, a bathroom wall in Montana that, uh, he's like a truck stop. He stopped at and, uh, scrawled on the bathroom wall. Um, I killed Tanya Bennett. January 21st, 1990 in Portland, Oregon. I beat her to death, raped her and loved it. Yes, I'm sick, but I enjoy myself too. People took the blame and I'm free. A couple days later, he makes his way from Montana because being a trucker and, you know, that's how roads work. They connect to other states and all that interstate highways. Um. He makes his way to Oregon. Another truck stop. He writes down January 21, 90. Killed Tanya Bennett in Portland. Two people got the blame so I can kill again. So both these times he writes these things on the bathroom wall, the men's bathroom. And he, of course, doesn't write his name, but he writes a smiley face. And... There's still not getting a lot of press on this. There's no press on his writings or anything, but there's a lot of press on the uh, trial and how this Laverne and her boyfriend got did this and all this stuff. So he starts writing letters to the Multnomah County's DA office, uh, district attorney's office, and um, the Oregonian. So he ends up writing several letters talking to the editor of the Oregonian or directing him to the editor of the Oregonian newspaper, as well as the district attorney in Oregon. And um, 
every time instead of a name he just writes a smiley face at the end finally he writes a six page confession to the editor of the oregonian of course completely omitting his name or anything but just detailing all of what he did plus a couple more killings by now and uh writes that smiley face at the end so now uh one of the main reporters for the oregonian is given this story and he follows it like crazy (laughs) he starts finding every bit of information starts actually himself connecting other murders along these highways oh shit yeah and writing all about it and he's the one that actually dubbed keith as the happy face killer because of all the smiley faces at the end of everything um and he's the reason uh he's the one that helped prove that laverne um and her boyfriend were actually completely innocent and got them freed. So um, he continues on his killing spree as he's driving along the interstates, doing his long haul trucking. And um, he keeps killing transients and sex workers along the way, people hitchhiking, things like that, always women. And um, by early 1995, he had killed seven women. And um, wow, yeah, at this point, Melissa is now 15. So, um, Back to Melissa, he's, Keith is coming back in town, visit his kids, and uh, he picks up Melissa and her two siblings. He's like, hey guys, I'm, you know, he's in town, let's go to breakfast. Um, Melissa's two siblings have other things to do. So picks up two kids, all the kids, he drops off the other two at the various things they had going on. And he just takes Melissa out to breakfast. They go to a Denny's. They're sitting there. Um, various other times he had always been, he had always been a bit too open about his sexual life. Um, even to the point where he would graphically go into detail about his relations with his then wife that was their mom to them, to his kids. Oh, my. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've already covered that he's not right in the head mm-hmm. with everything he's doing. But um, even at the point where they were at this Denny's having breakfast, she's 15 years old and he's like making really gross comments and gestures toward the server that they had that day. And um, she's just kind of like, Melissa's like, Dad, can you just can you stop? Can you, you know, just kind of uncomfortable, but, um, and at one point he leans over and he kind of starts to talk to her like really weird and vague. He was like, you know, I got something to, to tell you, but I can't, I can't tell you yet. Or you would call the police and I'm not ready for you to do that yet. And she's like, kind of looking at him and kind of a afraid to even ask and it makes her so incredibly uncomfortable that she starts to feel like she's almost gonna cry so she excuses herself goes to the bathroom kind of calms down by the time she comes back to the table he's kind of acting like he never even brought it up and she's like yeah okay cool let's not let's not talk about that yeah um and she unfortunately And this is kind of one of those things that a lot of survivors, survival guilt kind of thing. Um, She very much questions, what if he, what if I had asked, what if I had pressed and gotten him to tell me, would I have called the cops or would I've tried to protect my dad? Cause I loved my dad. And because at this point he had killed seven people, not eight. And 
he, um, she wonders like if, what if I did call the cops and he didn't kill that eighth person, person, um, would I have saved her life? But she also realizes that you can't do all the what ifs, Yeah. but she's also human and they're always back there yep. in the back of your mind. That. Yeah. So, um, after that, you know, he ends up going back on the road and then later goes back home to Portland to his girlfriend and he, um, apparently got very upset with her and just decided to kill her because he felt like she was only using him for his money. So he kills her, takes her body on the road with him for a little bit so that he can dump her body a little ways out. And of course, police immediately suspect him because he's the boyfriend, because that's kind of like how police works, you know, police work goes. Like, and, uh, who is she dating? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Are they married? No. Oh, it's probably the boyfriend. Or it's probably the husband. I mean, that's usually the first go-to. Um, I guess I shouldn't say boyfriend, husband. It's probably the the partner, the spouse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, her name, he killed her March 10th, 1995. Her name is Julie Ann Winningham. Um, he strangled, raped, strangled, distributed naked body. Um, and, uh, they caught him pretty quickly because there were literally no other suspects. <laughs> and, um, he first, when they bring him in for questioning, completely denies everything. Um, and, uh, they take him in they really give him the the good questioning the good you know good cop bad cop routine all that good stuff for a long time eventually they have to release him and he just gets even more depressed and in his own head and he attempts suicide and luckily he fails at attempting suicide and because of that, he decides to turn himself in. So he goes to the police, tells them everything. And of course, they are only thinking that he killed his girlfriend at this point. Mm-hmm. And while he is awaiting trial for the murder of his girlfriend, he starts confessing the other murders. Oh, boy. Yeah. He goes on and on and he actually at first tells them that he's killed upwards of 160 women later he recants that because he realizes that he's just being boastful and he's like there's no point in lying yeah he's like a little kid that just wants somebody to pay attention to him yeah like even telling your kids all the creepy shit he was saying it's the same thing like tell me i'm great tell me i'm the most of something yeah Wow. Yikes. Mm -hmm. So he starts giving details about um, some of these other murders. He talks about, um, uh, I'll give a couple. Um, There's June of 93. The remains of a woman that he said was either Carla or Cindy Um, she was discovered June of 93 in Santa Clara County, California. Um, and he describes that he met her at a truck stop. He bought her some food. They had consensual sex, but then he strangled her and, um, in the truck and then drove several miles before he decided to discard her naked body. Um, There was another one, um, November of 92, a 26-year-old Lori Ann Pentland, her body was found in Salem, outside of Salem, Oregon. Um, He claimed that she was a sex worker and he said she raised her fee, like he hired her um, as a sex worker and said one price, but once the deed was done, raised her price 
and demanded that money and then threatened him that she was going to call the cops so that he to give her her money for an illegal act um and so he strangled her (laughs) because he's not going to pay that money august of 92 um body of a woman was found near Blythe, California. He said that he'd raped and strangled her to death. He called her maybe Claudia. And um, this one is actually still really difficult to identify who exactly she is. Um, They haven't connected to her, her to anyone missing named Claudia. So unfortunately she's still a Jane Doe. there are a few others, one of which that he had picked up and made the mistake of letting her use his credit card to call for two separate times to call her dad and call her boyfriend. And so he was afraid that uh, her body would be traced back to him. And uh, so he tied her body up to the bottom side of his truck and made a point to speed for upwards of 10 plus miles to make sure that she was that her face was very much unidentifiable and hopefully her fingerprints were not on anymore oh god yeah so he's in jail He's serving many consecutive life sentences in the Oregon State Penitentiary. And um, Melissa, his daughter, went on to do many years after, you know, she was 15 when he went to jail. So she grew up, she did some therapy. She believed that keeping quiet with your story was not the best way to heal. She felt like being open and honest and talking about things was the best way to heal for herself as well as for others. Mm -hmm. So she ended up going on Dr. Phil. And after that, she received hundreds of letters, people that were family members of other murderers that had dealt with the same stuff she had to deal with. Like, after this had happened, after her dad went to jail for these awful, awful, horrible things, she lost all her friends because their parents didn't want their kids around her for fear that she was going to be like him, you know, and people were mean and awful. And so she talked about all that. And so all these family members of other murderers and awful people wrote into her and were like, I can't thank you enough for talking about this. We've gone through this too. This has really helped me. She went on to write a lot about it and even do write and produce her own podcast uh, that I listened to that actually made me first really very interested in this story. At first it was like, ugh, that awful person. But then I heard her story and I was like, man, this is so much more. What's the podcast? Um, it's called, it's happy face presents the, yeah, it's happy face presents the happy face murders or something like that. Uh, I should have written that down, but (laughs) yeah, we can look it up. Yeah. Um, but her name is Melissa Moore. Um, and yeah, it's presented, I think it's from iHeartRadio, but there, I mean, I heard it on iTunes, but anyway, um, yeah, she's gone on to do quite a bit of work that helps family members because that's a lot of, they're also victims that don't get the same. I mean, they're they're victims. They get a lot of awful treatment and there's no good that help or grace or caringness or anything towards family members. It's almost like they did it themselves. And that's 
in no way how people should be treated when they happen to just share a little blood with someone that did an awful thing. I totally agree. And I mean, she's the kid and speaking of kids of killers, yeah, person that I always wonder about, and I think it's smart. They've mostly kept her out of, Mm. you know, limelight or whatever is Ted Bundy's. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. She's like between our age, probably. Mm -hmm. Melissa is my age. Yeah. And I'm like, nobody, you know, I wouldn't ever be able to tell you anything about where she is, just probably smart. Mm-hmm. But her mom was also a crazy person. So I'm like, what happened to you? Where did you end up going? What? Yeah. I hope you're okay. I hope your mom didn't <laughs> like, I know, you know, I know my heart goes out to her because that's one of those things. And even Melissa did a like brain scans and things like that, because you wonder, am, am I like this person that I come from? Am I going to have these traits that made him this monstrous? So yeah, it's, it's just an extra level of awful and hardship that people should never have to deal with. But she used her pain to help other people. And I think that's, I think that's incredibly heroic. Yeah. It's pretty fucking cool. Mm -hmm. Cause yeah, I mean, that's, we've, I feel like we've probably talked about this at least in person with each other, if not Mm -hmm. just on the the podcast here. Mm -hmm. Uh, But kind of when you get dealt a shitty hand, it doesn't, not just like what it is. You know, and it's really, I find it really inspirational when people are like, this is the deck I was given. Mm -hmm. Wasn't super great. So I reassessed that and built upon it and made a new path. Yeah. It's fucking great when people do that. Absolutely. How can I improve things in any way? It's great. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Yeah. Well, I'm in full <laughs> recline mode now. I know. I'm very relaxed now that I got that done. I w- that that story stressed me out. <laughs> Every now and again, we were, we were sort of talking about this earlier. Uh-huh. Now and again, certain stories just put me on edge. Like when we did Chili Willy in season one. Yeah. I like didn't sleep. Like I was having nightmares every I fucking I remember you telling me about that. And that doesn't always happen to me, but yeah, that every now and again, they really get to you. Mm-hmm. And that's why I've been watching Cobra Kai. <laughs> I freaking love that show. Oh my God. So I the shit out of it the other night. <laughs> Do you call him Danielson? <laughs> no, but I, oh, I can't even tell you. <laughs> I'm not on this. I'll tell you, but I can't tell the podcast because it's a surprise. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, with that. <laughs> oh, um, drink good local beer. Tip your fucking bartender. And you're welcome for the fucking nightmares. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye, guys. For more information, we can be found on Instagram at Seattle underscore on underscore tap email at Seattle on tap at gmail.com or our website Seattle on You can also like us on Facebook and all of the Seattle on tap original music is provided by bubble bathism courtesy of the subterranot recording collective.